Well, if, you've had, if you have your Bibles open before you, we will be in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 this morning. It would be great if you could have that open in front of you. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 will be our focus. And as you've already heard in the scripture reading, the book of Hebrews launches, as it were, by talking about God's speech, God's speech to us. When I was younger, growing up in the U.S., there was a series of famous ads, late 70s, early 80s, on the television for an investment brokerage firm by the name of E.F. Hutton. Now, you won't have known these, but let me describe them for you. So, uh, typically, as these ads would begin, you'd get two people walking along in a busy sort of setting. One that I remember, two gentlemen having just got off a plane, collecting their uh, luggage at the baggage claim, and they begin to walk, and you can imagine the bustle of people, all the noise, and one says to the other, well, what are you doing with your investments these days? And the second one turns to him and says, well, I've been talking to my broker, and my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and at that moment, everyone in the entire terminal freezes and leans in to listen to what E.F. Hutton has to say. That was, that was the ad, and it was very successful for many years. Because when E.F. Hutton speaks, so went the tagline, people listen. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. What was driving that tagline in that ad? Well, I think it was this. It was the assumption that there was an expert speech that was going on. E.F. Hutton knew what he was speaking about. He was an expert. He was therefore trustworthy to take your money to him and get advice. And as a result of his expert advice and trustworthiness, his speech was valuable. It was of such great value that you stopped whatever you were doing to lean in and to listen. The proper response to that kind of speech, therefore, is to listen up, listen, listen well. And that's exactly what we find as we begin Hebrews chapter 1 and read God in the past has spoken in many ways and many times to the forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God's speech, as we will see, is expert speech, trustworthy speech of infinite value. And therefore, the proper response for us is to listen up, to listen to what it is that God has to say. That is one of two points that loom large in these four verses for us this morning. So let me just lay before you, uh, as we begin, what those two points are, and then we'll begin to unfold each in turn. The first, as we see in verses 1 to 2, is that God the Father has spoken. God the Father has spoken. The second comes at the very end of verse 3, where we see that God the Son has sat down. In the original flow of these verses, those are the two primary actions which rise to prominence. God has spoken and God has sat down. God the Father's speech and God the Son's seat. So for the children, those of you who might have the worksheet or whether, whether you don't, I want you to be thinking right from the start this morning of two images that will help you remember these, these two main points. 
When we think about God's speech to us, I want you to think about the image of a megaphone. I don't know if you know what a megaphone is. It's the kind of tube that starts very small at your lips and gets larger as it goes out. And when you put it to your lips, it magnifies your voice. It makes your speech come across loudly and clearly. That's the idea I want you to have in mind for that first point, God's speech to us. Think of a megaphone. For the second idea, that God the Son has sat down, I want you to think of a throne. So a megaphone and a throne. Who is it that sits on a throne? It's a king or a queen, isn't it? It's a royal ruler who takes their seat upon a throne. So if you can keep those two images in your mind this morning, you'll be able to remember much of what this passage is teaching us. That God has spoken to us loudly and clearly. That's the megaphone. And the Lord Jesus has taken his seat on a throne in heaven. And here's the thing I want us all to remember as we hear these two points and consider them before us in God's word. The announcement that God has spoken and that God the Son has sat down is good news for us. It's good news for sinners. It's good news for God's people And that's why Hebrews begins where it begins here. Because there's so much more to say as the rest of this New Testament uh, book unfolds. But these two truths are front and center for us. Let's think a little bit about the book of Hebrews. So uh, Andy is gone this week. As you know, our minister, Reverend Pearson, is uh, away for these next two weeks. And so uh, you're, you're stuck with me, I'm afraid, for a few a few sermons. But I'm taking it as an opportunity both this Lord's Day and next, to do a small mini-series, if you will, in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. And so I thought we'd take a few minutes to set the scene this morning and think about the whole flow of the letter of uh, the letter to Hebrews in the New Testament. What is Hebrews about? What is it for? Well, if you've got your Bible there, keep a finger in chapter 1, but flip all the way back to the end, which is chapter 13. And at the end of Hebrews, we get a helpful clue as to how to understand what Hebrews is about. It is a bit like a letter, isn't it? Because it's got greetings at the end. Chapter 13, verse 24, greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. We're used to that kind of thing in New Testament letters. But we're also told in verse 22 of chapter 13 that this is a different kind of letter. What does it say? Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation or word of encouragement, some of your translations might have. Hebrews tells us, in fact, what kind of thing it is. It's a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement. And we know from other places in Scripture, specifically Acts chapter 13, what a word of encouragement was. When Paul and Barnabas go to the church in Pisidian Antioch as they're traveling around, they go to the synagogue there in Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they are asked by the Jews in that synagogue if they would like to stand up and give a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement. In other words, what we have here in Hebrews is a sermon that has been written down and then sent as a letter to churches. Hebrews is a sermon. It's a very early sermon that we have in the New Testament. 
And it's meant to encourage us, to exhort us. So that's the purpose for which he is written. And if we go back to chapter 1 and see there in verses 1 and 2, we're given right from the start significant clues about how the preacher who's preaching this sermon wants us to understand the Lord Jesus in light of a variety of Old Testament texts. Do you see it there in chapter 1, verse 1? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We'll come on to this again later this morning and then again this evening as we look at the remainder of chapter 1 of Hebrews. This preacher knows his Old Testament. And he wants his people to know the Old Testament, not just for its own sake, but once particularly for them to see how all that was revealed in the Old Testament finds its focus and its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a sermon that's meant to encourage and exhort, but it's also a sermon that is Christ-centered on the basis of the Old Testament. And finally, if we had time to go chapter by chapter and look at the themes that are unfolded for us in Hebrews, we'd find in chapters 9 and 10, we get to the real theological heart, the Christological heart of Hebrews. And it is rich. It's beautiful. It's something I would commend to you to read this afternoon, perhaps, or in the coming week, if you've not read it recently. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. And there we see it's not just a sermon that's meant to encourage. It's not just a sermon that centers on Christ and unpacks and unfolds the Old Testament uh, truth in relation to Christ. But it does so in a very particular way. It holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. He is a covenant mediator. And if that's language that's not so familiar to us, well, then that's precisely why we need to revisit or read for the first time all that Hebrews holds out for us. So that's what Hebrews is about. And that's why as we come to this opening section in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we see what one old writer writer puts it uh, as, uh, we see a spring This is a spring bubbling forth in these first four verses that all the truths that will flow in the remainder of this letter, this sermon of Hebrews, they all bubble up right here in the first four verses. It's bubbling with truth that we need to grasp. It's bubbling with life-giving truth. And so we want to understand that more this morning as we think about God's speech and the Son's seat. And as we think about in the end, how we might be better listeners to God's word and how we might look to that place where the Lord Jesus Christ has taken his seat and that we might look to him with more faith and more clarity. That's where we'll end this morning. So let's think about God's speech and the son's seat and then we'll uh, close with a few applications this morning. As we look at verses 1 to 2, we've already seen there, there are several implications of this fact that God has spoken. It's a truth we take for granted, isn't it, in some ways? But it's an amazing truth that God, the God who has made all things, the God who has ordered a way of salvation for sinners, has spoken into the world, into our lives, It's been written down for us, and we can hear his speech as we listen to these words. 
How has God spoken to us? Well, in verses 1 and 2, it's very clear that, that he has spoken to us in his word. God speaks to us, not primarily through a voice in our ear, not through visions and dreams, although he has done that in times past, primarily, definitively, most clearly, God speaks to us in the Bible, in his word. And he has done so in many different ways at many different times. We need to pause here and just consider again something that we should know, but we might not always remember, that there is no way for us to know who God is apart from listening to his voice revealed to us in the scriptures. If God did not reveal himself to us, we could not know who he is. And particularly, we could not know him as a God who is a saving God, a God who desires to show mercy on his people. This is a wonderful truth for which we should be thankful that God has spoken to us in his word. But verse 2 reminds us that it's, it's particularly as his word climaxes in his son. In the past, God spoke in the prophets by means of the prophets, those writers in the Old Testament. But in these last days, we're told, verse 2, God has spoken definitively, climactically, in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. And in all those apostles in the New Testament who were authorized by his son to write those things which they wrote. God speaks in his word. God speaks son. Those are truths from verses 1 and 2 that we need to consider. What does it mean to say, as verse 1 tells us, that God has spoken at many times and in various ways? Those are very interesting terms that our author chooses to open with. God has spoken at many times. It might be simply that he is reminding us that God has spoken down through history in many ages of history. So before Israel was even a nation, he was speaking to them. And then he calls them out of Egypt. And then he takes them into the promised land. And all that time, he's speaking to them by means of the prophets. He's revealing himself to them. But it also could mean that God has spoken in in installments That bit by bit, as the Old Testament unfolds, first you have the Mosaic Law, don't we? The first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch. And then we have the historical books. And then we have the prophets. And then we have the Psalms and the wisdom literature. And that as each of those installments unfolds, God is speaking to his people. God is speaking incrementally. More and more truth. Progressively, he is revealing himself to his people at different times and different ways. As you know it, you hold in your hands there a a book that that is actually comprised of how many books? 66, at least, different books, aren't there, that make up part. And those books are divided sometimes into other parts. And each of those books we know is attributed to a human author as well, right? So Moses writes part of the Old Testament. David writes part of the Old Testament. Other authors, some of whom we don't know their names, write parts of the scriptures. The apostles write various parts. All of those then gathered here. And Hebrews 2 reminds us that though there are 66 books, though there are many different human authors, there is ultimately one book 
and one divine author. Do you see it? Do you see the emphasis in verses 1 and 2? Who is the one who is speaking? God spoke, verse 1. And it continues to be God who has spoken in verse 2. The Bible, in all of its variety, in all of its parts, is God's unified speech to us. And that's why, that's why we need to know all of the Bible. We need to know the whole counsel of God if we are to know Him, to love Him, and to see the Lord Jesus for who He is. We need to spend time in those parts of the Old Testament, perhaps, that we have neglected, that we aren't as familiar with. When is the last time, you might ask yourself, that you read the book of Leviticus? Or that you spent time reading Ecclesiastes or the Song of Songs? When is the last time you read the Minor Prophets? Because as we hear the truth in these first two verses, we realize that if we want to be good listeners to God, if we want to know Him, and if we want to know His Son in all His glory, we need to know this book. We need to be people who listen carefully to God's Word. Do you remember the image I held out for the children just a bit ago? The, the, the Word of God, the Bible, is God's megaphone speaking to us loudly, speaking to us clearly. It is where it has spoken. God has not revealed himself in any other book. You will not find God by reading the Quran. You will not find God by reading the great philosophers down through the ages. You will not find God simply by walking in the woods and listening carefully and hoping to hear an inner voice. That is not where God has promised to reveal himself. It is not where he has spoken clearly. This book, and only this book, is where God has spoken to us. Are we listening to the Lord as he speaks? And what is it that he says when we begin to grasp the message that is revealed in this book? Well, again, keep a finger in Hebrews 1, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I just want to read you one glorious summary of the truth that God speaks in this particular written sermon. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, we read this. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The God who created has also revealed a way for sinners, fallen sinners, to be made right with him. And he has also revealed that he will come again in judgment. And so we must respond in faith to the saving work of the Lord Jesus. That, in many ways, is the message of this book held out to us at many times and in many ways. Are we listening? Have we heard God speaking to us in his word? God's word as a megaphone. But God's word is not only a megaphone. It's also written, isn't it? It's a letter. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian of another generation, writes a little parable telling us of a king in a far country who writes a letter, 
a detailed letter, a letter written in love and crafted specifically for his people who live far away. And he sends this letter by means of a messenger. And the letter is received. And the letter is revered. It's known to be from the king. There are oohs and ahs at its reception, but it is never opened. The people never read the letter and are therefore never able to know what is written in it from their king. May that not be the case with us as we receive God's speech, his word, in this precious book. May we open the letter. May we read it with attention with reverence, with diligence, applying ourselves to understand, to study it. As we come each Lord's Day to hear this word proclaimed in the preaching of God's word, let us apply ourselves with diligence, with preparation, with prayer, that we might hear it and receive it with gladness, and that we might know the Lord God, both in his holiness and in his saving power. God has spoken, Hebrews 1 reminds us. We must be those who listen. As we move on from verses 1 and 2, we begin to see in the latter part of verse 2 and verse 3 that God has spoken some very specific things just here in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's going to elaborate on, that he's going to explain in the coming chapters And what he wants to do as he speaks to us in this written sermon of Hebrews is to render the Lord Jesus Christ more glorious to us. If we read Hebrews and come away without a more deep and clear vision of who the Lord Jesus is as our Savior, as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, as our covenant mediator, then we have not listened well. Because that is what the Lord wants to, to say to us, to tell us. And he begins to do so in these verses. Do you see how verses 2 and 3 begin to flow? First of all, it's God who's the subject of the action, isn't it? God has spoken. God has spoken. But then, right there, in verse 2, it begins to shift. He's spoken to us by a son. Verse 2b, whom? The latter part of verse 2, through whom the beginning of verse 3 depending on your translation you might have the son starting a new sentence or more like the original you might have who or he do you see what's happening there in the latter half of verses 2 in the beginning of verse 3 whom through whom who it has now shifted our focus from God the Father speaking to God the Son and who he is. Who is this Son? Well, who is the Son? He's the one who takes his seat at the end of verse 3. But before we get to that climactic point of Jesus taking his seat on his throne, we are given precious truth about who the Lord Jesus is as the Son As the Son, that's the name which is in focus here. Who is the Son? Well, have a look. In verse 2, he is the heir, isn't he? He's been appointed as heir. We'll talk more about that this evening as we 
finish out chapter 1 of Hebrews. So if you're able, do come back and join us as we close the Lord's Day together with worship this evening. Then in verse 2, Jesus is also the one who makes or creates all things. He was the one who was there at creation. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the Father and his glory. He's the exact representation of God's being. Going on in verse 3, he continues to sustain, to uphold all things by the word of his power. And again in verse 3, he's the one who has made purification for sins. Do you see the riches compressed here? Phrase by phrase that tell us who our Lord Jesus is as the Son. It is in being these things and in doing these things that we come then to understand who the Son is as he takes his seat on the throne at the end of verse 3. Now, we don't have time this morning, I'm afraid, to dwell on each of those phrases in all of their richness. As I said, we'll speak a bit more about what it means that Jesus is the heir, the one who has inherited a great name, the name Son, this evening. But we want to focus in the time we do have on two of those phrases so that we can understand who this Son is who sits down on his throne. The first one we want to linger over is right there at the beginning of verse 3, that he is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his being. Have you ever had a close look at a pound coin that you might have in your pocket? Who's on the head's side of the coin? It's, It's Queen Elizabeth, isn't it? It's Elizabeth II. How is she depicted on that coin? And this is the case, isn't it? Down through history, across, no matter what country you're from, you pull a coin out of your pocket and you see there a ruler's face or a famous face imprinted, stamped, the exact representation of that person there on the coin. If you look at a pound coin, you see Elizabeth in her regal authority with a crown, a profile. And you have a look at that And you would recognize the queen, having seen that image. It bears some of who she is, even as we look at that image. That's the kind of language that our writer uses just here to express Jesus, the Son, to us. Jesus, we're told, is the only true, the visible manifestation of the glory of God of his glorious being, and he's a true, exact representation. When you look at Jesus, you see God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. That is where God has revealed himself, in the Lord Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God, of course. Now, for the children, and really for all of us, this brings us to a great mystery of our faith, doesn't it? that we know that the scriptures teach us that God is three in one. He is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit. As the old creed from Athanasius tells us, we worship Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. And so what is true of Jesus is also true of God and vice versa. God reveals Himself exactly truly to us in the Lord Jesus. 
So what does that mean for us? It means that we seek God through Christ. It means that the only way to come to God is through Christ. It means that Christ Jesus is the one whom the Father has sent to bring us to him. And do you begin to feel here the visual language that the writer of Hebrews is using? The image, the glory, the representation language. That will continue as we read right through the remaining chapters of Hebrews. Lots of visual language. And do you know what it's all directed to? It's all directed to turn our gaze to look at the Lord Jesus by faith. Not with the eyes of our flesh, but with the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our faith. So that Jesus is portrayed to us in glory with words so that in our hearts we can look to him and see him more clearly and cling to him more tightly. Well, that's who the Lord Jesus is as the radiance and the exact representation. But he is also, we're told later in verse 3, the one who has made purification for sins. That having made purification for sins, after he had made purification for sins, only then did he sit down. What do we learn here? Well, we learn that Jesus came with work to do. And that he accomplished that work. And only after having accomplished that work of purification, of redemption, of atonement, only then did he take his seat and rest in royal glory. Jesus came to make purification for sin. Which leads us to ask ourselves, what is sin? And why did we need a son a Savior who would come to make purification for sin. Well, we know we know our confessional standards. Our catechism tells us what? What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Do you hear that? Do you hear the two parts to sin as the Scriptures teach us about sin? Sin is not simply when we break God's law, when we lie, when we steal, when we think lustfully in our hearts. It's not only those transgressions, although it is those. It is also those times when we fail every day to be perfectly conformed to the law of God. Which means that we all sit here as sinners needing one who can purify us from our sin. In desperate need of a Savior One who can make purification for sin on our behalf. And that, according to Hebrews 1.3, is exactly what the Lord Jesus, the Son, has done. He made purification for sins, and then he sat down. How did Jesus do that? Well, of course, we'll see more of that in Hebrews. But he offered himself as a blameless sacrifice in our place shedding his own blood on the cross in our stead. Jesus did battle with sin, with temptation, even with death, and then rose from the dead victoriously, ascended on high, and only then he sat down. The Lord Jesus is the one who has made purification for sin. And so we come, as we conclude this morning, to his sitting on the throne. 
God the Father has spoken. God the Son has sat down. We've heard a little bit of the blast of the megaphone this morning. Let us close by listening and looking to the truth about Jesus sitting on his throne. Uh, Our children, like many of you, uh, if you have children or perhaps yourself, still love the books by C.S. Lewis uh, about Narnia. And in that first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you might remember how it ends. That in the battle against the White Witch and all of her minions... The Pevensey children, together with Aslan, are victorious. And what do they do, having won the battle, Aslan having risen from the dead? What happens when they go to the castle at Caerperavel? They take their seats on four thrones, don't they? Only after the battle has been won, only after Aslan's blood has been shed, do they sit down and enjoy that royal rest, ruling for the good of all Narnians. That's the picture here. That's the picture to have in mind when we come to the end of verse 3 and hear that Jesus sat down. Jesus, who is victorious over sin, over death, over temptation, has sat down, and he has taken his seat on a heavenly throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a theme picked up again and again in Hebrews. So that if we turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that the main point, brothers, that I've been trying to make is that we have such a great high priest, one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Same language as we get here already in 1, verse 3. Jesus has taken his seat on a throne. And what does that throne, what does that sitting ascended Savior mean for us this morning? It means that we look to Jesus as the one who has all power, the one who provides us with all the protection that we need in this life, the one who is able to dispense the gifts that he has received in inheriting a great name so that we might, chapter 1, verse 13, inherit a great salvation. It means that the one sitting on the throne rules for our good. So as we close this morning, we've heard about God's speech to us, and I ask you, are you listening? Are you a careful, eager listener to the Word of God? We've heard about God's Son, who gloriously has revealed the Father to us and who has worked purification for our sins and taken his seat on a throne. And so I ask you, are you looking to that Savior seated upon a throne this morning? What is your response to God's word? Do you accept it? Do you embrace it? Or do you reject it? Do you ignore it as you move through the days of the week? God speaks to us in his word. We must ponder it more closely this week. Let the word work on you. Spend time in the word and let it penetrate your heart. Let it penetrate your mind. Prayerfully come to your time of Bible reading each day. Ask the Lord to open his word to you, that he might show you new and wonderful things from it. Embrace the good news that that word holds out to you in the free offer of the gospel, that though you are a sinner, you too, even you, can be saved by the gracious work of God in Christ. Listen to that word. Run to that word. 
Because if you do not have Christ, you do not have God. If you do not have Christ, you do not have purification for your sins. Listen and then look. How is it that you day to day are looking to the throne of grace where the Lord Jesus sits? Do you look to that throne as a throne of judgment? Are you fearful when you ponder what it means to have a Savior who is glorious and seated in heaven? Does that make you afraid? Does that make you ashamed? Or do you hear the invitation from that one on the throne saying, Come to me. Come to me. I have made purification for your sins. Come and receive all that you need. Draw near with great eagerness. Bow the knee to me and I will rule for you. So let's be those who listen and those who look. And let's pray.